Off the elevator with Joe and Jesse. What's up? We got Steve. What's your last name, Steve? Steve Harding. Where are we at? Is this Woodstock? This or? is Woodstock. This is Woodstock. And Woodstock with Steve Harding. Mm-hmm. So I had to race like a madman to get up here after work. Oh. I was in Dallas. Flew that's as a, fast yeah, as I could. That's a piece down the road. Yeah. So I got off at 11. Ate some sandwiches on the way. Talked with Cooney. Made it here in plenty of time. Felt good about it until I got in the car with her. <laughs> so, I tried to tell him I'm a very aggressive driver. I worked downtown Atlanta for 10 years. I'm a very aggressive driver. It. Uh, but he's also a sissy about it. Right out of her driveway, she's got this backpack. She's pulling jewel pods out of it. She's throwing things in a charger, saying, oh, no, I forgot this, I forgot that. While oh. she's driving? No, we're okay. sitting at the stop sign. We were at the stop sign. We weren't even moving. and he Oblivious yeah. to everyone else that is in Holly Springs. We're, I was not oblivious. There was no one behind me. I was aware of it. We are the only people there, <laughs> right? So then we get out on the highway. I'm not going to dog you too bad, but I'm driving back. Wow. Period. I'm driving back. I can't take he it. He has a man complex. <laughs> so what Just you been doing? What Working, you, hanging out. That's it? Yeah. Steve? Uh, you know, not a lot. I've been just doing some stuff around here. Uh, I worked with a newcomer this morning. and uh, Nice. Get, yeah, yeah. So everybody knows uh, Steve and I uh, met at the Breakfast Club at the Howe Place, and uh, he has done a lot for me in my sobriety and I asked him to come and tell his story so we could you I could we could share I could share a little bit of what Steve shared with me sure um, so. yeah and you know Joe I thank you for coming over it's nice to meet you and Jesse just love you and and have watched your journey and that's been exciting to me actually um, I don't know if you mentioned it Joe but um, today is four years and 364 days for me so tomorrow's five years oh really yeah mm -hmm. I didn't know that yeah that five years awesome. five Not years bad. tomorrow um, and the, unfortunately it, well yeah, I guess unfortunately or unfortunately it wasn't the first time right so uh, but I'll get into that and I'll tell you a little bit about me um, I was born um, in Pensacola Florida uh, quite a long time ago, in the mid-50s, and uh, my dad was a military aviator. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about my dad real quick, because that's that has a lot to do with my story. Um, my dad was born at the end of the Depression in Indiana, uh, southern Indiana. It was farm country, and um, his family basically had no money at all. And so when he was born, uh, they gave him up. They gave him up to... Uh, uh, foster care and basically there it was just you found another foster care was they just found a home a farm where he could be so mm -hmm. he had several foster homes uh never pretty much when he got old enough to work they would have him work on the farm so he really wasn't a son to anybody he wasn't even a foster son he was basically a, a helper mm -hmm. who got fed and had a place to sleep um so you know things were hard for him but he didn't know anything different uh, he did get, he went to a foster family, um, Rex and Nancy, uh, towards his, bef right before he was a teenager. 
and uh, they kind of really cared for him, but he still was basically a farmhand. But they, they took care of him, made sure, you know, he was kind of headed in the straight and narrow. So, you know, my dad had a hard life, and he kind of learned to take care of himself. And he has that A-type personality where, you know, he's a doer. He's a doer. He's, he accomplishes things. Uh, he went to, he decided to go to Purdue uh, university and uh, somehow he got in there you know on his own back then I guess it wasn't as expensive but he got in and he worked to go there and he he uh, even played on the junior varsity basketball team because he likes basketball or he liked basketball a lot and uh, but uh, he decided to go into the Naval Academy um, to become a naval aviator and uh, so he was always you know purpose-driven goals uh, goal-oriented um, like I said, very, he knew what he wanted and he was going to, he was going to grab it. Um, so he was very authority, authoritarian. Um, he went to Pensacola for flight school and the Marines came along and asked him, uh, said, you know, we're looking for a few good men. And he said, that was one of the, he said there was two big mistakes he made in his life. One was joining the Marines, and the second one was getting married. So that was pretty much his attitude, uh, you know, towards families. But, you know, in those days, you you, you got married. That's mm-hmm. what you did. You got married and you had kids. Right. And I was the first kid of four. Uh, my mom was born in Birmingham, and she... Um, you know, didn't come from a well-off family and a broken family. And uh, I think my mom basically decided, well, she lived in Pensacola. And basically what girls in Pensacola did was wait till the guys come to flight school and then find a husband right. that, you know, is going right. to, to be able to take care of them because they're going to have a, you know, and they're going to take care of them. They're going to have a good uh, life. So that was kind of her plan, and she didn't really plan on much else. And um, the only thing is, she didn't really, you know, she finished high school and stuff, didn't get any other education. And one thing about my mom is she had a lot of resentments going through life um, because she didn't feel up to par. My dad became an officer. She never felt up to par with the other officers. She the same age as your father? Uh, She is one month older. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but she, so she had a lot of insecurity, a lot of insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was born, I was, like I said, I think I said I was the first of four. Um, and that was the days my dad was out on a flight somewhere. And, uh, when he came back, you know, he picked me up and the first thing I did was pee on him. So that, <laughs> that that's kind of like how our, our whole <laughs> existence went, um, you know, from the time I was very young, uh, I was different than him. I was an mm-hmm. uh, introvert. I was a loner. Um, I was a daydreamer. I just, you know, I didn't, you know, as I grew up, I wasn't, I did, wasn't good at sports. I mean, I was really pitiful at sports. I, uh, you know, they say the proverbial couldn't hit a, the side of a barn with a basketball. I mean, that was <laughs> me. I was really bad. And of course, he's very athletic and um, was, so your, we, was your interest there? You just wasn't good? You know, I mean, I tried because I want to make him happy. Right. Um, but, you know, I'd rather read right. <laughs> or right. I'd rather just sit and daydream. And I, I was artistic. I like right. to draw a lot. Um, I like to create things and I like to draw uh, 
you know, fantasy world, spaceships. You are still very like artistic. I, I try. I try <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I've, I was I've telling Joe about that at the, at the painting meeting that uh, the amount of artistic ability you have. Well, it used to be more. I don't, you know, it's one of those things. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not as good. And, and you know, I had a period of OCD in my life where that really takes away your creativity because everything has to be perfect. And right. unfortunately, that's kind of stuck with me. So I, I feel hindered. Um, anyways, uh, I had two other brothers and a sister that came along and, and, uh, Oh, being in the military, we moved a lot. It was like every two years. I was born in Pensacola. We lived there like two months, and then we moved to Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, My brother was born there. We lived there two years. We moved to Anaheim, California. Uh, My other brother was born there. And then we moved to Bangor, Maine, and that's where my sister was born. And all these were two years, two years, two years. And then we moved to, then we went to Virginia. So, the whole thing is there, you know, I, I'm starting to go to school and I would try to have friends, mm-hmm. which was hard for me anyways, being introverted and, and being very shy. And uh, once I would try to finally meet somebody, we'd have to move. Mm-hmm. So I got to that point, I think, where I was, I, I had that feeling that it didn't matter to have friends. It didn't matter to have relationships it, because it was all going to end anyways. Right. And honestly, that kind of carried out throughout my life. Um, I don't have any friends from high school. Um, and I knew a lot of them. I had some, you know, pretty good friends. And uh, But it's easy for me to walk away from anything. Mm-hmm. Girls, it didn't matter. Just jobs, just leave. It's because nothing lasts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's... As time went on, the things with my dad and I were not good. I mean, he was, you know, he tried to get me interested in things I didn't want to do. And, you know, he thought I was strange. And, of course, uh, in fifth grade, I started wearing glasses, which, you know, then he tells me, well, you can't be a, you won't be able to be a fighter pilot like me because you wear glasses. And uh, you might be able to fly a transport plane. And I'm like, oh, screw this. You know, I'm just not, I'm not going to do anything like you. So, you know, I, I, there was always that, that I didn't, I didn't, um, what's, I didn't measure up to right. what he expected right. for his son. Um, my just younger brother was very athletic. And, of course, right there I could see, oh, you know, Doug is loved, cherished, mm-hmm. I'm looked at as some kind of loser. And actually, um, my mother, because of, I, I always think about this, but I think because of her insecurities, she never really, I don't think she really wanted children, mm-hmm. but that was what you did. And right. that was what my father wanted because that's what you did. Right. You had 3.5 children and, you know, and what, right. and bought a house and had a wife and you went to work and the wife stayed home and took care of the kids and you didn't have to do anything with them. But my, my mom resented that. My dad went overseas. He went over to Vietnam twice and he was in Japan for two years. And, you know, my mom hated that, that she had to take care of four kids. Sure. And she, she recently told me that too. She, she just said, you know, your dad always got to go out and have a good time. Mm-hmm. And I was left with four kids. Right. She's just, <laughs> she's still carrying it. Yeah. She, Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, I heard that, 
I've heard that in the last few years and it didn't bother me because I already knew that. I had come to realize that was the truth. And what, what that kind of caused with us and the family dynamic was there was no love. Right. I, I actually never, when I was a child, I do not recall my mom um, ever saying I love you. I never recall my mom hugging me. I don't recall any of that. And, you know, as you know, I've been working at a grocery store and I see people come through with their kids and they're like hugging them and playing with them. And I'm like, God, that's what it was supposed to be like, huh? And, you know, I don't, I, it's just now I understand these things. Mm -hmm. But I, I, now I can look back and I, I say, this is, you know, this is kind of like why I was alone because yeah. I never knew love from my family. And, um, uh, so I just felt outside. I felt unloved, unneeded, and insecure. And that also related to how I got along with other people. So I was very insecure. When I got into school, I was insecure. I, you know, I just, it took me a long time. I could find the people that became my friends were the people that had problems. They right. had, they were like me. They were introverts, or they were artistic, or they liked books. Um, so those were the only people and it was hard for me to start relationships with them. Um, but anyways, so I was very uncomfortable and girls, you pretty much forget it. That was just the most frightening thing in the world. I, you know, I had the interest, but I was, I, I just didn't think I could go there. Um, but I had a friend in my neighborhood who was older and a couple years older than me and you know, he, he was a he was a kid that came from a strange family, and he had a lot of problems. And so, me and him were we hung out a lot, mm -hmm. and we hung out. He had some older friends too. Well, uh, one night, my parents were going to be gone. They were going somewhere. I don't remember where, but I was going to be uh, I was going to be there, you know, with my brothers and my sister. And so he asked, Rick asked, he says, you know, how about I get some guys together and we come over, you know? And I said, well, yeah, you know, why not? And cause we, I really liked music also. I really loved music and Rick introduced me to all kinds of really cool rock and roll. And I'm just, I started buying albums and Rick's <laughs> teaching me stuff cause I didn't know anything. Right. But so I'm learning this stuff from Rick and I love the music and I'm feeling it. And how old were you? Uh, I think I was 14. I was either late 13 or 14 mm -hmm. when this happened. Um, but anyways, when they came over, they came over at night, a bunch of them. And, you know, this memory's not clear because that's, that's decades ago. But um, I know that I had a bottle of vodka and orange juice. And I know that I drank the whole thing. And I spent most of the time in the kitchen. I mean, just like cutting up and doing whatever you do when you finally don't have any shackles or chains on anymore. Right. And so, you know, music was blaring. They were playing records on my dad's stereo and stuff and people were running in and out of the house. I don't know what I was doing with my little brothers and sister, but, um, anyways, the next day I woke up on the kitchen floor about as sick as I could be. You know, I mean, I didn't know what a hangover was. I didn't even know what a headache was, but I had the worst feeling in the world. And I had to go to the bathroom and I was getting sick. And, uh, you know, I was scared to death. For my first scare was, of course, my first fear was, you know, my father is going to come home. He's going to find out about this mm -hmm. and he's going to kill me. 
And uh, then I just said, oh, you know what? It's okay. I said, that was the time I realized that I had lost all the inhibitions that I had in life and that I had felt completely not me. I was no longer Steve. I was someone else. I was friendly. I was outgoing. I was powerful. I was good looking. If there were any women there, who knows what else. You had had confidence. It it came in that vodka bottle. False confidence, that's That's right. It came in that vodka bottle. For sure. Anyways, we got things cleaned up, and my parents never found out about the party. But And I felt really bad. I was really sick, and I knew right then, as you probably heard many people say, I couldn't wait to do it again. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the real progression at this point. I don't know how often I drank, but you know, my friend was old enough, looked old enough to get uh, alcohol. And um, he would get it from different sources or get it from his parents, whatever. So I would drink anything I could, and I started emptying out my parents' liquor cabinet. Now, they did not, I I didn't say this, but they really didn't drink. My dad was a teetotaler. I mean, he would have an occasional glass of wine. Mm -hmm. They kept liquor at home for when they entertained people. Right. Uh, My mom, actually, I used I walked in the kitchen once, and I saw her pouring from a clear liquor bottle into a can of soda that was open, and I'm like, hey, I wonder what she's doing. (laughs) But um, they didn't really drink. They yeah. really did not drink, especially not my dad. My dad didn't smoke all his life. He did not cuss. It was If he ever cussed, he was very uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the thing is, like I said, I, I just, everything had, had come out, and I started watering down their booze bottles and, you know, just drinking some. And then we were, from whatever source I would get, beer or whatever and i would get with my friends that were you know the the outcasts and we would drink beer and i would get things like mickey's big mouth malt liquor because they had big open i don't even know if it still exists but you could just pound those things 12 ounces of malt liquor going down fast and hard and the thing is i could drink i mean i i still fluids for me are something i always have to have so it's like i'm always thirsty so with alcohol, it was like, I don't sip anything. I mm-hmm. pound yeah. everything. Right. Um, so that's the way I drank. And, you know, I started going to, I didn't have a girlfriend, but people that had, my friends who had girlfriends would invite me to parties. And at first I'd feel really, oh, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Oh, well, we're going to have, there's some beer. We're going to have some wine. And so, okay, I'll go. <laughs> And we'd get there, and I'd be real uncomfortable because, you know, this was the 70s, and they were make-out parties, you know. So here's, like, three couples and Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, well, let's start drinking. And as soon as I start drinking, I become the entertainment for the whole party. I mean, right. I'm just cutting up. Everybody's laughing. I'm trying to pick up on other people's girls. And <laughs> it doesn't even matter, you know. I mean, yeah. but they still want it, it, you know, They know I'm harmless, but... But, you know, that was my life. That's what I loved. And, uh, you know, I kind of did that as much as I could, as much as I could. And I never got in trouble. Um, I think I was 16, and uh, I had a friend. I was on the wrestling team, and a friend, a heavyweight wrestler, and we drank a lot. And he actually worked at a convenience store, so he would get boosted like crazy. He was my best friend. And we would drink a lot together. He was a big old boy. And um, 
anyways, one night we were together and there was another guy with us and we came back to where his, where he was staying in his mom's apartment. And, uh, he said, here, we're going to smoke some hash. And I said, he said, you ever done that? I said, no, no, I'd never done any drugs. He says, well, he says, just, just try it. And so he lights up this little pipe and, and passes his friend. They pass it to me and I take a hit. Of course, I'm all choking and it's horrible. I've never smoked anything. So they're passing it around. We're passing it around. And I'm like, you know, I'm a little bit drunk. And I'm saying, well, this is like bullshit. I don't feel anything. <laughs> I don't feel anything at all. And there, yeah, okay. And so we get out of the car. We're going to his apartment. I fell flat on my face and just laid down there and just started laughing my butt off. And so they had to carry me into the apartment. They carried me. They dragged me in the apartment. They laid me down. And he, his mom's this little Jewish lady. And I still remember her looking over me and he's going, is he okay? And my friend Mike says, oh, we, were, we just had a really hard wrestling practice. <laughs> uh, but that's, you know, I, I started using... Uh, it didn't matter what drug it was, mm-hmm. anything that would come my way in high school, I would try and ended up smoking a lot of pot in my junior and senior year as much as I could. I mean, mm-hmm. I just my junior year, I, I really still was in my studies because I knew I had three years of accelerated courses and my senior year, I was going to coast. Mm-hmm. And boy, my senior year, I let loose. We had I had uh, auto tech second period and every time that was two periods auto tech was two periods because I, I loved cars but as soon as he would take roll we would take me and my buddies would take off and it was it was time to get high and it was time to get drunk and we would go somewhere we'd get something and and that was it it was on well anyways i gotta go back just a little bit because you know my dad was seeing problems in me um, earlier, or he was worried about me. My mm-hmm. dad was the commanding officer of a, of a squadron at El Toro Marine Corps base. Anyways, they picked up this, uh, they picked up this private for, um, heroin use. And, uh, my dad, I was probably 12 years old and my dad brought him because, you know, my dad's thinking of his, in his infinite wisdom, I'll bring this Marine there and he could tell his story to my son and that'll scare him straight or whatever. So my dad brings this Marine home and it's just me, my dad and this young Marines. Um, he's probably 19 or 20 years old and you can see he's scared. He's scared of my dad. I'm scared of my dad. Everybody's scared except my dad. And he, the Marine starts telling me about how he shoots up, you know, heroin between his toes and how bad it is and how sorry he is he ever got on a life of drugs. And I mean, he's telling me a lot of stuff, and all of a sudden I can't even hear, you know, because right. I'm like, for one thing, I'm in shock. I, I don't even know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. This was before I'd ever even tried any drugs. Right. I don't even know what's going on. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was just a white kid in a white neighborhood going to all white school and I don't know anything Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking to myself why is my dad doing this to me why is he doing this to me and I was so upset that once he let me go I don't know I just went and I just cried and I was just so upset and I thought to myself you know oh he said to me he said he goes Steve the reason I did this because of any of my kids you'll be the one that takes drugs wow yeah yeah, nice thing to say to a little kid. 
But, you know, I guess he thought he was doing some good. Right. But right. what he basically did was I said, well, I'll show you. I will be the one. And I made sure that I yeah, invested properly in that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, I went to, I got out of high school and I went to a vocational school in Arizona for automotive uh, tech, you know, mechanic school. But actually I wanted to work in auto parts. That was that was my dream job. It was weird. I used to hang out. I used to hang out at auto parts stores when I was young, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So, me not having a whole lot of goals and everything, it was like, well, you know, I'll just work at an auto parts store since I love hanging out at auto parts stores. So I went to school to become a better auto parts guy. Anyways, three hundred and sixty-five day uh, vocational school. I partied every single day. We got high. I, I'm not familiar. You guys are kind of young, but uh, cross tops was an amphetamine. Were very popular then. Um, I did a lot of that stuff. Um, we drank all the time. I mean, I could go to school drunk because I worked during the day at a gas station, and I could uh, go to go to school at night and be pretty well lit up. And the thing is, I kind of had natural talent for mechanics, so I didn't have to listen i already knew all this stuff i was just going to school i think to get away from home and to party Mm -hmm. and uh uh anyways that was uh that was weird that was the first time that i had that freedom to be on my own to party every single night where were you living were you living i was living no no i was in arizona my parents i went to school yeah california yeah, yeah i went to school in um so you like lived on in yeah, student housing we had or apartment. had your own apartment? We had an apartment. They put us in apartments. I had three roommates, and yeah, they all partied. Mm-hmm. You know, we waited till we got the roommates we wanted to have our core group, and it worked <laughs> good. And yeah. and I met a guy that was from Santa Barbara, California, and you know he looked like a typical surfer type. And he was really spacey and stuff. And, you know, he sold pot while we were at school and, you know, from our apartment and stuff. And later on, you know, we hitchhiked around and would go get things to eat and stuff. And he's, one day he said, hey, you want to try some acid? And I said, what, is it? what do you mean? He says, LSD. And I said, oh, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. I just like getting high. He says, well, this is getting high. He said, this is really getting high. And, and so, you know, the thing is, I didn't really have any limitations at that Mm -hmm. point i was like okay i was a little bit scared but you know he says i'm gonna tell you and he says i took acid every single day of my high of my senior year in high school and i believed him because his head looked kind of like strangely shaped and stuff (laughs) so i i knew there was something about him but i mean i kind of i liked him i gravitated towards him since he was a freak Mm -hmm. and uh anyways uh he says you know what? I'm your guide. I know how to take acid. He says, all you got to do is if you're in a good mood and you take acid, everything's going to be fine. If you're in a bad mood, it's you're going to have a bad trip. So basically, I took a four-way hit of window pane and we went walking out in the desert. And I just, tore, I saw ants the size of cars and I saw cars that were scraping on the ground and I wow. saw... I saw the most amazing things <laughs> and it just scared the hell out of me sometimes and made me happy other times. And it was, it was a night that was hard to forget. Um, but I mean, I was just like 
I just want to keep getting high and being high, and this is how I'm going to live because this is how I'm coping Mm -hmm. with life. I mean, it's so much better. It's so much better. I can get through everything. Right. You think you're better. It it seems, but in that time period after, what, 11th grade wrestling team, you're not an introvert anymore. You're socially partying. Oh yeah, constantly. Yeah, I'm. I'm very popular so, with my group. What? What? So was it only in a group setting? Was you doing any of this on your own? I had a girlfriend. I had a girlfriend. I finally got a girlfriend, and she actually. Well, it, I. I just gravitate towards people like this. She came from a foster home. She was in a foster home when mm-hmm. we met. Her father had died of a heart attack while doing an eight ball of cocaine in his attic because he thought the police were looking for him and his mo- and her mother got arrested for selling drugs and prostitution. Wow. So I, you know, I look for damaged people. Mm-hmm. I, and that's one thing about me. I, I always look for people to take care of for somehow, because I never felt I was taken care of. I wanted to take care of people. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, and, me and my girlfriend, we talked about having children. We we're going to have two children. We we're going to live on a houseboat. And and the thing is, I got her to party more than she probably wanted to. Um, that's kind of what I did to people. I trained them in my ways, uh, which I did to both my brothers and my sister. Um, long stories there. We could talk about them a lot, but we won't. Uh, anyways, um, moving along. Uh, I went to work for Napa Auto Parts. I drank a lot. It was a perfect fitting for me. Auto Parts in the 70s, in the early 80s, there was a lot of drinking. After work, you went and got beer and you stayed in the store till who cares, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And you go home, maybe drink some more. So it was perfect for me. And I met other people that did drugs and and partied hard. And so, you know, that was nice. My girlfriend and I started living together. And uh, I started concentrating so much on my friends and working on cars and going to the desert. We went to the desert a lot, rode dirt bikes, howled at the moon and drank tequila and smoked pot and did whatever. But anyways, my friends were more important than my girlfriend. And so anyways, she, she ended up leaving me. And of course, that was, there's a lot of details to that, but I won't go into it. But she left me, and of course, that spiraled me into now I don't have anything. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything. She was everything in my life. I didn't show her that she was everything in my life. Right. But she was like, I need you. I need to take care of you. Now you're leaving me. And she was leaving me for somebody else, too, which an insecure person like me, that was very hard to deal with. Right. Um, so at that time, we'd also been introduced into Quaaludes. Might be something else you guys don't know about, but they were very popular in the mid '80s. Uh, we'd also tried cocaine. Um, I didn't care for it because it cost too much money. You know, a hundred dollars for a gram was like, oh my god, that's a lot of money. You know, in the early '80s. Anyways, well, she left me for a coke dealer, and um, I totally went off the hook. And one night, um, my sister came up with some of her friends and. I was already doing Quaaludes, and I was drinking. I remember I was really on this Lone Star beer kick for a while there. And uh, I had a 76 Dodge van, and we were going to go out. I was living up in the valley, and we were going to go out and party up near the dam. And we went up there, and we were partying. And some of my friends came, and 
met up and I mean, we were just, we were just wasted and we had a bunch of beer. And so we start driving back and I'm, you know, I'm actually a really good driver. I drive like you. I'm aggressive, Jesse. I really, I really am. People say that about me all the time. They, See how you said I'm a really good driver. I I'm drive really like you, good Jesse. Driver, but I was a police. I oh, know who's why. good and who ain't oh, good. Totally. I'm not gonna listen to him. I'm right? just, I know. I'm just checking the tickets off in my people, mind. People call me an angry driver, but I'm just a good driver. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But anyway, so. We're driving down this dark road up in the valley, coming down from the dam. My friend is in front of me, and I've got all these people in the back of my van, and I've got the stereo blasting, and I'm probably running around 60, 65 miles an hour in a little two-lane road in total dark. And I look over to the left, and here's the Sheriff's Bronco sitting over there on the side. And I look over, and it's like slow motion. His lights come on. And I'm like, dang, this ain't happening. This ain't happening because I am really high. I was going 100 miles an hour. I almost ran my friend. My friend was in an El Camino. I almost ran him off the road. And I'm driving this 76 Dodge van down the dark street at 100 miles an hour. But I had it in control. I missed my normal turnoff that I took to go back into the lower valley. And... At 100 miles an hour, all of a sudden, I saw a guardrail in front of me, mm. and I hit my brakes real hard, and the van went sideways, went up over a curb, went through the guardrail. Thank God I had uh, aluminum wheels on it because it smashed all four wheels, and the van did not tip over. It just slid. Wow. It slid through the guardrail. Wow. Um, my stereo was just blasting. I went to turn the volume down. And the stereo was not in the dashboard anymore. <laughs> the impact had broken out of the dashboard and gone inside somewhere. Wow. So, and there was beers, long neck bottles of Lone Star back there popping in the back, and beer was spraying up on the inside of my wow. van. And nobody, thank God, and I, I can thank God for this, nobody was hurt. And I had maybe six people in my van. Um, and nobody wearing seatbelts, right. just all in the back. The mm -hmm. good thing is they say drunk people don't get hurt in accidents that much. Mm -hmm. Anyways, unfortunately, uh, the police caught up to me. I saw them coming up, and I got out of the van, and I went up to them. And I said, hey, everything's all right. I got this under control. Uh, they didn't appreciate that too much. <laughs> one of them went around behind me and grabbed me and, and uh, basically put me in a chokehold and uh, then they handcuffed me and put me back in the back of the car and they started going to see what happened. And, um, I got out and, uh, I actually, well, I, I gotta go back. I had my hands behind my back, but I was skinny enough at that time that I got my arms underneath me with the handcuffs on. So I got back out of the car at back out of their Bronco and went to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, and Steve. They, and they... Uh, <laughs> they didn't appreciate that either, did no, they? No, they beat the shit out of me. <laughs> they beat... They actually... One of them hit me with his with his baton, his his billy club, and, you know, I wasn't feeling anything. It, but I had a lot of bruises the next day when I woke up in jail. But anyways, that was, that was the start of a real downfall. That was um, 
four years in four years i had three duis all of them were car accidents and all more really bad accidents and i'm gonna you know i have to thank god right now for the fact uh, and i kind of shared this the other day in that accident nobody was hurt the second accident I was driving my little Toyota pickup and I decided to go to sleep while I was driving. I mean, I laid down on the seat because I was tired and I hit a parked truck head on. Um, And, you know, I could have hit anybody and killed somebody. So that for that, I thank God every single day. Um, My third DUI, I almost ran over. I passed out while driving and... um, I almost ran over a person on a bicycle. He was a witness, and I had a pole uh, that was bigger than that doorway, which really tore up my car. I had a 74 Ranchero. The engine was on the passenger side. So I know Mm. at that point God was watching over me. For sure. Um, I... That car had a lap belt, so I hit the steering wheel with my teeth, so all these teeth that look so pretty are actually, they were put in there in 1985 and 86. It took a long time to fix my mouth. Um, that point, I went to jail. Um, I got sentenced to jail for four months, uh, which wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't bad, and I didn't really care. That was your third DUI? That was my third DUI, yeah, and third with accident. And mm-hmm. um I went to jail, you know, I got really drunk before I went in and, and I, you know, I, this is a really sad thing. I didn't even, um, I didn't even say anything to my work. My boss, who was also alcoholic at the auto parts store, he was the manager of the store. He, um, he said, um, you know, he says, I'll just take care of things and you don't worry about anything. And I just, so he knew I was going to jail, but I never went to any supervisors or anything and said I was going to jail. But, you know, I, I want to back up just a second if I can, because mm-hmm. this was the important part of my story. And this is something you've always asked me about, Jesse. Um, when I was when I started partying hard in high school, me and my buddies, this was this was what I always said. I said, I am not going to live to see 30 years old. And, you know, it was a joke. It was a joke to me. But I was I was actually serious um, because I didn't you know, page 423 where alcoholics change their goals to meet their behavior mm-hmm. and normal people change their behavior to meet their goals. My behavior was important to me. My, I had no goals. The Having children, basically, that was just to make the girlfriend happy. Mm-hmm. Um, having a career, that was... If I had money coming in to buy booze and drugs, I was going to be happy. And the thing is, I knew 30 years old was really old. And I was figuring, you know what? Something inside me said, you cannot maintain what you're doing for that for that many for that many years. Right. So you better check out. You know, it's better to burn out than fade away. And I knew I wasn't going to live. So that accident I had on Terminal Island, my third DUI, um, I was 29 years old, and I should have died in that accident. And you know, I I said I ended up in jail. That was my fourth DUI. I turned 30 in jail. Uh, I called my dad. I called my home hoping my mom would answer, and my dad answered, and, you know, he had to call collect, so I was surprised he even answered. Um, And I had walking pneumonia, and I hadn't gone to work shoveling cow shit, which was my job at Mm -hmm. the medium security prison or jail. And um, 
So I felt really bad, and I, I mean, I had this, like, walking pneumonia. I'd gone to the doctor, and he said, yeah, they gave me some pills that I had to go to sick call for. And anyways, you know, it was my 30th birthday, and I never said anything, and my dad never said anything. All he was, he just sounded so disappointed the whole time. And I'm turning 30 years old in jail, mm-hmm. and I'm like, man, my life is, it's you know, worthless. Right. I'm just worthless. And, uh, and anyway, you didn't think you'd live that long. I was... I guess I was hoping I wouldn't hoping. live that long. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I got out, and um, yeah, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit because when I got out, you know, you'd think maybe I'd learn something, but I didn't. Um, when I got when I got out of the hospital before I went to jail, I had another girlfriend, and I had it just picked up a gram of cocaine, and it was in the in my ranchero. So when my girlfriend got me home from jail, I said, you need to go to the wrecking yard and you need to let them have give you access to the car and you got to find that gram of cocaine. And while I was in the hospital, because all my teeth were torn out and I you know, was continually bleeding from my upper mouth, they said, whatever you do, I don't even know why they said this, whatever you, they, you do, don't use a straw to drink or anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... <laughs> Yeah, okay. So anyways, this is amazing. My girlfriend goes to the wrecking yard. They let her, her go to the car. She finds a gram of cocaine down in the floor of the this wrecked car, brings it home, and we start tooting up this gram. And I'm, you know, I'm tooting through my nose and blood is dripping out of my mouth onto the floor, onto my carpeting of my apartment. And I don't give a shit. Wow. And I'm drinking like crazy. I mean, that's where I spun to. That's where I spun to. Yeah. Those were some of the hardest times of my life. A um, lot of details. Um, I'm just going to kind of fast forward a little bit. I don't know where we are on time, guys. but um, We have all the time you need. All right. Well, uh, you know, I went through a, my, a first marriage, and that was the girl that found the cocaine. And uh, she was 10 years younger than me. She just wanted to get out of home, out of the house, because mm-hmm. um, she just wanted to get out of the house. And I got married because I wanted to get out of trouble. I'm 30 years I'm 30 years old, and I'm figuring, you know, if I get married, people think I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. turn into a responsible adult. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we got married, much to her parents' chagrin. They did everything they could to try to stop it. And uh, I, nobody, we didn't care. She didn't care. She, she was, she was a bad character, kind of like me. She was probably worse than me, actually. But I taught her, you know, I taught her about cocaine. I taught her. I got her to smoke cigarettes. I got her to drink. Mm-hmm. I got her to do everything. And and then I ended up leaving her, and uh, that was a big regret. I still hate what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, How long were you married to her? I was married about a year and a half, mm-hmm. but you know one of the things, and I'm be honest with you, as a as a Christian, this is one of the things that I have the biggest problem with. Before we were married, she got pregnant twice, and uh, she did, you know she didn't know what to do, and she said, "Well, I'm going to abort the babies," and I was like, "Well, hell yeah, you know you are." Mm-hmm. I said, "We can't have, I can't have that," and you know I still think about that. That's something that tears me up on the inside. Is is. Uh, because I know those babies were alive, and uh, right. that's something I'm gonna have to live with. You know, I live with it. I don't beat myself up over it. But right. I'm hoping the day that I get to go to heaven, that I get to see those babies, because I believe they're there, right. and I believe all life is given from God. And and uh, 
that was hard. And I still carry that regret because I agreed for her to have abortions, which, mm-hmm. you know, at the time it was perfectly fine. But right. as I became a well human being, mm-hmm. it just, it was a really bad, to me, it was like murder. And, right. And I basically committed it. So anyways, I got married uh, again. And uh, on my, our wedding night, I got way too drunk. I think I tried to pick up some women in a bar with one of my friends I worked wow. with. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And don't tell her that because I'm still married to her. <laughs> Wait a minute. She might hear this shit. No, she, I think she knows it because we were in a really big fight that night. So it was a lovely mm-hmm. wedding night. Lovely. Uh, yeah, it was not good. It, but that was kind of like the way I did things. I just right. I would uh, destroy things and then I would try to make things right because I, you know, I could be a pretty nice guy. I could, people, this was weird. People were attracted to me because I seemed friendly and I seemed caring and mm-hmm. I seem, I have a lot of empathy for people and people could see that. You don't seem those things. You are those things. Uh, well, yeah, thank you. Well, but, the, the, the thing I've noticed for the hour and 20 minutes from the second I got out of the car to even in telling this emotional, powerful story, he's smiling the whole time. Mm-hmm. That people are attracted to a smile. I like smiling now. I didn't always smile, Joe. Right. I didn't always smile. But anyways, um, I got married. We had a rough time. It, my wife, I was li- we were living in an apartment. My wife says, I'm going to buy a house. I'm like, I don't buy a house. Mm-hmm. You know, I still got that goals, no goals. Right. That would ruin the behavior of me being an alcoholic. I got to get a house. I got to take care of stuff. Yeah, I gotta be go responsible. Through, I got to, you know, like sign a lot of papers. No, I live in a very nice apartment. We can stay here. No, I want a house. So mm-hmm. we bought a house. Much, you know, and the thing is my drinking accelerated so bad that it was getting out of hand. And one thing is I, I didn't mention I was what you would call, quote unquote, a functional alcoholic. I always went to work. I mean, I, it didn't matter how hungover I was. <laughs> if I had to drink before I got to work to, to mm-hmm. clean myself up, to get myself to stop shaking, whatever, I went to work. I mean, that's what I did. For one thing, I needed money. I needed yeah. money to support what I did. Joe and I can relate to that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, of course. We know yeah. how important it is. But anyways, I got, this was in 1996, and uh, we'd been married for going on six years. We'd been in our house for a couple years, and um, all of a sudden, uh, I'd partied so hard over the weekend, and I was drinking, I was drinking bourbon. That was my thing. Uh, I drank a lot of bourbon. I drank, I would get two handles at Costco, and it was supposed to last me two weeks, but what I'd do is I'd stop at the liquor store so the wife wouldn't know, and I'd buy like a fifth, and I'd pop off that little pour, plastic pour thing and refill the bottle so she wouldn't see and then get rid of the bottles. You know, typical behavior that mm-hmm. some of us might be familiar with. Um, but I mean, it was, I drank all the time. I just drank all the time. And, and one Monday morning, I couldn't go to work. And of course, that made me feel really bad. I had to call mm-hmm. in sick. And uh, so what did I do? Because I felt so bad. I got to, I sat there listening to the radio talk show and made myself Coke and bourbon and mm-hmm. just drank and drank and drank. And my wife came home. I was incoherent, crying, saying, I won't do this anymore. Won't do this anymore. And, and you know, this was a time I couldn't sleep anymore because 
I would pass out on the couch. I'd make my I'd make it to bed by midnight or something. And then you, I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but you wake up about an hour and a half later and you can't you don't feel good. You can't see you're thirsty. You got to get up. You you feel horrible shit going through your brain. And so you can't sleep. And so the next day I wake up, I can't go to work again. Wife goes to work. What do I do? Well, I'm make bourbon and coke. I'm gonna listen to the radio talk show for a couple hours. That's all I'm gonna do. Just drink a little bit. Drank all day. Once again, wife gets home. I'm I'm so incoherent. She can't even talk to me. The next morning, I get up and I'm feeling really bad. I said, I need. I I don't know what I'm gonna do. I we need to do something. I gotta stop drinking. So I went to my doctor. My wife took me to my doctor. And I said, uh, I went, my doctor called me in. It was back in the days they called you and actually talked to you. And he put me behind his, you know, he was behind his desk. I was sitting in front of him. He said, uh, so what's wrong? My hands are shaking like this. I mean, my hands are just shaking. And I probably look really sick. And I said, I think I have a problem with drinking. And he, so we talked for a while. And he asked me, he goes, Steve, you ever think about suicide? And I'm just like, well, Yeah. Who doesn't? I mean, that's to me, that was normal thoughts. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, life really sucks. If I weren't such a coward, you know, it'd be everybody should probably want to check out because this really is not that much fun. But, you know, I guess we were told that, you know, we could go to hell if we commit suicide or something. So it's probably not a good idea and it's mm-hmm. messy and painful. But, you know, I was just like, well, yeah. So I didn't think anything about that. I thought that was the right answer. Because mm-hmm. I, that's actually how I felt, because I thought about suicide all the time. Anyways, he gave me a letter. He put in a sealed envelope and says, I want, I'm going to send you over to this hospital down the road. and I'm just going to want to check you in there for a while. And so my wife drove me to the hospital, and we pulled in the parking lot. And I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really still messed up. And I said, I'm going to look at this letter. And it says... Uh, I open it up. It says, please admit Steve Harding to the hospital for suicide watch. I'm like, what the hell is this? Suicide watch? (laughs) I need to stop drinking. Right. Anyways, I don't know how long I was in the hospital. So you went inside anyway? I went. Well, yeah, I went inside because I see what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I want, I I was sick. You, you know, I was really sick. Mm-hmm. I was real desperate, and I didn't know what to do. I had no idea. Well, little did I know, I was in the hospital for two months. I did not know that. And I remember the day I got there, and I remember the day I left. I don't remember anything in between. Uh, I know I was in a hospital bed most of the time. That's one thing I know. So I don't know why I was there. I don't talk to my wife about it. Because mm-hmm. actually, this is part of the story. I thought I went in. I always said my first sobriety date was April 30th. Um, a few years ago, I was going through my stuff. It was about after a year I had sobriety this time. And I found a hospital band that said March 6, 1996. And Susan was back in the back. And I went back there and I took the hospital band. And I said, when did I go to the hospital in in March? Why did I go to the hospital in March? She said, you were in the hospital a really long time. I got out May 7th. I had no idea. I wow. thought I was there for like seven days. And 
I never, I just walked away from her. I didn't want to know. I did not even want to know what happened. But mm. all I know is when I got out, I had lost the compulsion to drink. Joe, I didn't know why. I didn't know why, but I felt good because I've been in the hospital not drinking. Um, you know, I talked to people. I said, I'm not going to drink anymore. People were kind of happy. Some people were kind of scared, like people that drank with me. Mm-hmm. Like, what's wrong with this guy? Maybe we're going to have to stop. But we're not going to deal with him. Um, and I don't know why I didn't, I don't know why I didn't stop drinking. I wasn't really, I didn't have any religion at that time. I'd been to church as a little kid and I didn't think about it. I was just happy I wasn't drinking and I felt good. Mm-hmm. I didn't know this for a lot of years, but, um, cause I didn't know what a dry drunk was, but anyways, we're moving to, we're moving to uh, Georgia from California in 1999, and I'm driving across. I'm driving the moving truck. She's in the car, and I all of a sudden I get this thought. I said, I should go to church when I get to Georgia. I should go to church. That'd be a good thing to do. So we stop at the motel. I tell my wife, we're going. Why don't we go to church when we move to Georgia? Why don't we start going to church? And she's going. I think that's a good idea. So we went to church. I'm trying to speed things along. We went to church and. Um, I started to understand God. I started to understand a loving God. Mm-hmm. And then I started to understand what had happened. And what I attributed 1996 was to God basically just hit me upside the head with a two by four and saying, hey, you dumb shit, you, you're killing yourself. And I don't want you to die. I got something else for you. I don't want you to die. Mm-hmm. And this came to me that my not drinking in 96 was a miracle. Now, the only thing is, God is very patient, and we don't always see his timing. Right. Um, Truth. And Jesse knows a lot about this part. I went 18 years not drinking, um, approximately 18 years. Um, I was restless, irritable, and discontent the whole time. Mm -hmm. I developed severe OCD. Nothing was ever good enough. Uh, I had anger issues. I mean, I was not, I was sober. I was going to work. I piss people off all the time. People piss me off all the time. I was mad. It, you know, I, there was never enough for me. Everything was just not right. And uh, anyways, 2011, I had back surgery, and my doctor gave me these yummy little pills called Percocet and Hydrocodone, and I never even thought for a minute that they were bad for me, for somebody like me. He didn't even know I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a neurosurgeon, so he was just doing my back surgery. So I started taking, you know, I was going to be off work for quite a few weeks, and I started taking the Percocet, and I had like 50 Percocets, so I'm taking them, and I got some Soma or something like that, and some uh, hydrocodone, so I'm taking all these, and I'm just, man, I'm happy. You know, the world is actually pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Things are, psh, people are coming over and visit me from church, and I'm talking to them, and man, I'm just, it's good. You know how you feeling, Steve? I'm good. You know, back doesn't hurt. It's good. I run out of Percocet. I call the doctor. I said, hey, doc, need some more Percocet. He said, Steve, we, we only give you those for right after surgery. I'll give you more hydrocodone. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I, guys, I didn't see this. I did not see this. And, and towards, I had a lot of, a lot of hydrocodone. I really loved them, you know, and I tried to 
take them at just the right times. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize what they were doing to me. And when I started to run out, I started breaking them in half because I figured, I don't want to run out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to run out. But I did, and I, and I was off them. And I was off. I was sad for a while. I was like probably a little bit of withdrawals. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, 2013, a lot of things had happened at my work that I had a lot of resentments about. Uh, that big old company that paid me so well, they'd gone and made decisions and not asked me about them. And they had, you know, which was their right. But I could not, you know, live with the decisions mm-hmm. they made and the way they treated people that I liked. And and the fact that they never asked me my opinion just pissed me off bad. And so I was getting really, really uncomfortable. My wife uh, likes to have wine sometimes. And so I buy her wine because I was the grocery shopper. And, you know, she works hard. She was in a big corporate job. And so I buy her wine and I'd say, uh, you know, my brain's already starting to work. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, why don't you try this wine? And, and and she'd say, oh, that tastes good. And I said, I'm going to take a little sip. She goes, you sh- should you? And I said, just a little sip. Mm-hmm. Ain't going to hurt me. <laughs> Anyways, I kind of do this this behavior for a while. And then one day I talked to my wife. It's on the weekend. She already had a glass of wine. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you and I sit on the front porch and have a glass of wine sometimes and she's like in shock she's like i can't believe you'd say that i don't understand what do you you're an alcoholic what are you saying i said i got this you know what this would be good for us this will be good for us i'm a master manipulator i can justify i can rationalize everything It took a little while, but I talked her into it, and she was happy. I mean, I made her, I made her realize she was going to be happy once I started drinking. So I remember when I had that first glass of wine. I kind of remember it. And uh, we sat there, and we had a glass of wine. And, of course, I said, well, let's have one more. Let's just have one more. I'll go get us another glass of wine. So I go in there to the refrigerator, open the refrigerator, take the bottle of wine out, and just start drinking it out of the bottle. Now, I didn't think that was a problem. I just thirsty, you know. I'm always mm-hmm. thirsty. Poured us in a glass of wine. Two weeks later, uh, I've been doing some yard some yard work or something, and I got out of the shower, and the next thing I know, I was laying on the floor naked and totally incoherent, and I was as drunk as I could be. I'd been drinking all day. My wife was at work, wow. and I have to somehow grab the phone, and I call her, and I say, you have to come home. You have to come home, and, and I, I don't know what's going on. I'm in bad shape. And so it started. I mean, it came back with a vengeance, and I was mm. gone. I was gone. And I kind of speed through this. You know, for a couple of years, I lived in hell. And uh, that was during the time my mom came and lived with us. And uh, so that was probably not the best recipe for me to be drinking during that time. But... Uh, we got to the point where I was still, you know, I was still working. I was going to work. I, I tried to quit a dozen times. I, I think the most I ever went was 21 days, but I was horribly, I thought I was going to explode. I thought my brain was going to actually pop while I was driving. And I would stop and get something to drink and with all the intentions of not doing it. And then I would come home and discuss with my wife why I should drink again so I don't, you know, kill myself or kill somebody else. Mm -hmm. And she would just shake her head and put up with it. And uh, 
it got to where every every Friday on the way home, I'd say, well, you let, why don't you just drink Friday tonight and you drink tomorrow and then Sunday you take it real easy and then you won't your guts won't be all torn up when you go to work and you'll feel okay and you know everything will be all right and of course that just never worked and I'd go to bed Sunday night and wake up, have to go down and get a drink, wake up, go to sleep, wake up, have to come down and get a drink. Well. July 18, 2016, uh, well, July 17th, Sunday night, same thing. I'd gone to bed, and I drank way too much, didn't want to. I couldn't sleep. Drank all night, just, you know, just sips, of course, but had emptied another bottle of wine during the night. That's not too much, right? Um, so I wake up my wife at 5 o'clock after I got up, and I, I come down here, and I, I looked at the coffee, and I was drunk. But not real drunk. You know, I was, I could do stuff. And I look at the coffee thing sitting right there, and I was like, I just have a cup of coffee, Steve. And I looked at the refrigerator. Now you need a drink. Make your coffee. I opened the refrigerator, and I drank. And I made my coffee. And I went up there, and I went in to start shaving, and my wife came in, and I was crying. And I was just looking at the mirror, and I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see me. I, there wasn't, I wasn't there anymore. There were like nothing in my eyes, nothing. I was gone. I was like gone. And uh, I was crying, and my wife says, you all right? And I said, no, I'm not all right. And she says, are you drunk? And I said, yeah, I'm drunk. Mm. And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I need help. I said, that, that prayer that we've all heard that we say, I need help. Mm-hmm. And through God's grace, she found me, you know, she put up with me one more time. She found me a rehab and rehab, uh, 12-step based rehab uh, that, you know, I always say it's the best $20,000 that was ever spent because when I got there, they said, I said, what do you, what do I do when I get out of here? They said, go to AA. And I said, okay, I spent, I you got paid $20,000. I I could have just gone to AA. <laughs> and, uh, but anyways, uh, you know, I loved what I learned there. I loved people I met there. And, and I didn't know what I was doing. But anyways, I got out. Mm-hmm. And my first day, I went to Howe Place. I went to the 1 o'clock meeting. The next day, I went to the 1030 meeting. Then I started going to the 8 o'clock meeting. And uh, I've gone ever since. And I'll tell you, um, you know, I had a big problem with AA um, when I was sober during that dry period, and my my sis, my little sister, who had I pretty much taught to drink, had joined AA, and I would always tell her, you know, the thing is, I didn't mention I was a uh, I had become a deacon in the Southern Baptist Church, and I'd gone on mission trips and I'm preaching and stuff, and and so I told my sister, I said, well, that AA thing is good for you, but I said, uh, there, you know, that that higher power of your understanding i said that's bullshit you can't you can't have that well you know i got to eat those words later because god has enlightened me with the fact he's god told me this he says i am your lord and i'm your savior but aa is your higher power right now and this is where i've brought you and this is where you're going to learn to live 
And so he did for me once again what I could not do for myself. Like, because man. and I, and the thing is, I know that he did this. He did. He brought me to where I am today. And Jesse will tell you, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. And I came into this program at 60 years old. And people would say, "Gosh, you know, 60 years of your life, you didn't live right." And I said, "No, 60 years of my life brought me to today, and I couldn't be happier than I am right now." And I am. All I can say is I'm thankful for people like you, Joe and Jesse, because we have a heart that reaches out to each other because we know, we know this journey. And my greatest wish today is to take this message to people that are addicted to any substance at all. Right. Because life can be so much better. And uh, when I see young people come in, you know, I've just latched like onto them. Yes. <laughs> you're like a child. Yeah. God bless you, Steve. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you said, you know, calls me kiddo. I'm like, hey, I'm taking it. I'm yeah. like, I'm, I'm, I'm for, you know, I'm forty ish. We're gonna go with forty ish. Yeah. Now uh, I'm in my, uh, I'm in my forties. You're over forty. But I was, uh, I was forty. I was, I was over forty because I was drunk on my fortieth birthday. Um, but yeah, it's forty years of my life that got me here. And I said the same thing. You know, I hear you say that, and it's like. Um, you know, AA teaches me so much more. It's like, you know, God brought me to AA and, you know, AA brought me to God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, I really believe that. And that's for me. That's my choice. Yeah. You know, so I don't put that on anyone else, but that's definitely my choice for sure. Well, one thing it says in the big book is that we needed to get rid of our prejudices and throw out our prejudices. And that's what I do. I accept everybody. In fact, you know, when when the agnostic comes in, which are so many of people that come in nowadays, you know, they mm-hmm. just don't even know. They don't have, nobody's talked talk to them about God, and they're scared of God, and God's never done anything for them. But, right. you know, those are the people that I want to see stick around, and, and they'll come to a realization of who God is. And, you know, maybe they'll be led to a church of their understanding, and that'll yeah. be good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. which is cool. I mean, when we sit in a room full of people that, like they say, we we would never, we would never mix with otherwise, different forms and fashions and backgrounds, and everybody is is you know, has the same understanding. Not not the same understanding, but we have an understanding that there's a power greater than us, that uh, relieves us. Yeah, and that's that's amazing. I agree. I agree. There's a. There's one thing in your story when you was talking about your job, how upset you was getting that the higher ups didn't come to Steve Owen, <laughs> yeah, ask him how the what million dollar corporation was supposed to be run or whatever it was. And me and Jesse had talked about resentments to institutions, mm-hmm. and when we was talking about that, I I realized when my stepfather, which was a big part of my life passed away i i was a police officer okay and i had a armed robbery case that was coming up and he passed away on a sunday and this case was supposed to start on a tuesday and um so i called him on monday i ain't gonna make it stepfather passed away um they held tight. The judge stood flat-footed and said, the case is on. You have to be here. And you want to talk about one mad individual. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, flew all over me. And uh, the chief where I work called him. He raised Kane. This is ridiculous. You know, the DA's office, and I don't I don't want to get all resentment on them on this podcast, <laughs> but, you know, in my thinking at the time, they can – they can put a case off if one of the lawyers is on vacation or the defendant's sick or, mm-hmm. you know, a big list of things was running through my of head. Of course. And they stood flat-footed. Mm-hmm. you got to be here. And I had some choice words that wasn't very nice for them. And I went in there, and I showed my tail. I told them, when I'm done here, I will not be back this week. That What I got to say is what I got to say, and that's it. I went in there and testified. I was very snide. I was hateful. Uh, the judge even, you know, told the defense attorney, had asked a question. He said, you know Officer Scott's deal. You know, we don't need to push this issue. Uh, when I got up, he said, well, I, I may need him later on in the week. I turned around, and, I mean, you got the jury, the defendant, the ADA. I'm, at this time, I'm full-blown alcoholic, too. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, oh, yeah. The, they're ramping the beast up with and something, you know, pretty dramatic has happened in my life. I'm having to help my mom. My stepdad's passed away. I'm, I've got those duties I've got to adhere to, and y'all have got me in the middle of this courthouse. And, uh, you know, I turned around and told them, I will not darken this door the rest of the week. You can hold me in contempt if you want. And I turned my fat tail around, and I stomped out, boom, 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 boom. And ever since, and I've I haven't been policing in four years, and they still call me to this day, and I didn't realize it until me and Jesse talked about it. Mm-hmm. Every time they call me, they get the worst side of me, because I'm mm-hmm. still ticked about that. Hmm. And, and I didn't realize I'm, it was even possible to have a resentment against an institution until. Right. I heard you talk about it, and it made me think about my job and how I felt. And then I told him, and then it was like this chain reaction. Right. And this happened in 2011. This has been a 10-year mm-hmm. uh, unbeknownst resentment. And I, and I got to thinking after we talked, you know, these, these people that deal with me now, even the judge isn't there anymore. He's since retired. Those ADAs aren't there. <laughs> but all these other people are catching this foolish wrath of my resentment that uh monday i'm gonna call and make some apologies and I'm, i gotta pray about this I'm making some amends yeah you know that's <laughs> and that's the thing is you know justifiable anger seems so something so worthwhile it mm-hmm. seems like so righteous and it's so wrong because right. Justifiable, justifiable anger is just anger. It just means, you know what? I have to look about what has been affected by me right. in this. And that's, well, I tell you, it, it's hard because I can still see something and I'll say, I got every right. I yep. got every right to have right. resentment against that. And then I say, no, you don't have, right. you don't have any rights. You, you don't, don't have, have that luxury. Rights. No, right. That's not right. a one, not a one. I, um, I don't have words for what you have said today. It was amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, I, for doing I, I got, this. I got one question. When, yeah. you was talk, when you was talking about your father and mother, you know, you was explaining uh, they was doing what you did in the 50s. They was getting married, yeah. having kids. Yes. 
pretty much explaining the the what is it Norman Rockwell paintings yes. of the dad sitting I in the chair <laughs> June and Beaver Cleaver type life of the fifties. What the religion in the family? No, no. The, the, you know, we went to church. We went to the base church when my dad felt like it mm-hmm. um you know and we'd get dressed up and it was all for show it was just to be the the show family i i went to church a lot up until i got out of uh, out of the house but basically i went to church just because i was told to go to church mm-hmm. and i you know i mean i understood a lot uh i knew some theology you know i had an understanding of god i had an understanding of jesus i was told what he'd done for me but I just didn't really care. I didn't care until I, until one thing I didn't talk about is I did have, I had a uh, Damascus Road conversion in 2003 when, when I was in my backyard and I was, I was actually uh, putting up a, one of those stone wall things. And I was listening to Michael W. Smith out there on the fish radio. And, and all of a sudden I just started crying. And I've been going to this church uh, that I was, this Baptist church I've been going to, and I've been really delving into the Bible and listening to the messages and, and really, you know, cultivating the, the relationship I thought I should have. But it didn't, you know, I mean, it was all the, you know, it was just the moves. Mm-hmm. But that day, and it was, I don't know the exact date, but it was 2003 and it was June, and I just started crying. And I just started crying, and I realized what my Savior Jesus had done for me. And my wife got home from work, and I freaked her out. And I said, "You know what? We need to go to the Christian bookstore because I got to go buy a bunch of CDs, and I got to go get some books." Right. And it freaked her out. But the thing is, she wanted to. You know, she, that's maybe one good thing my influence did because she got very involved in the church. Also, mm-hmm. we went on mission trips to Bolivia together. Uh, like I said, I preached to people there. I preached in my church, um, led Sunday school classes, went to hospice when people were dying. Uh, I was a prayer warrior. I mean, you know, we'd get together, uh, call Steve up, <laughs> and we mm-hmm. we prayed. And you know, that was the that was one of the hardest things on me. And Jesse's heard me um, share this, Joe. Um, I went into the program understanding the second step. Came to believe that a, a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I knew that for a fact. I didn't understand the first step, but I knew the second step. I didn't want him to because I had, I had shamed myself. <laughs> I knew God. He loved me. He cared for me. I turned my back on him and went to alcohol instead of to him. And I would not ask him for help. And that was about the stupidest thing I could have done. But that's where pride comes in. And me thinking my willpower could fix everything, and then I could come back to him. You know, oh, once I clean up my, mm-hmm. once I clean up my act. Not that Jesus hadn't already cleaned up everything for me, mm-hmm. but I'm going to clean it up because you know you've done enough, right? You've done enough, God, Jesus, right. you've done enough. I should take care of my. I did this, mm-hmm. and that was. You know, like I said, God has hit me in the, he's hit me on the head with a two by four a couple times. Right. And that's right. okay. Yeah. That's okay. As long as you don't put me down all the way, then I'm, I'm that's okay. Right. Absolutely. I'm okay. Right. Now I can just see what he's done and I can praise him and I can help, I can help fellow addicts and alcoholics. And that's what I want to do. Absolutely. That's what I want to do the rest of my life. That's awesome. It's perfect. Yeah.
some victory right there. I know. How exciting. Yeah. It, is. it is. I'm pretty sure I feel like I don't have my phone, so I'm not going to Google it. That song I sent you this morning, I think that's Michael W. Smith. It is. <laughs> what are the chances Sur- of that? Is it Surrounded? The name of it, Surrounded? This is how I fight my battles? Yeah, that's Michael it, W. Smith. It was, well, this was 2003, so it was an older song, and of course mm-hmm. it was off that probably that real infamous album that or cd he had at the time and i was it was on the fish so right but you know but it was a, it just hit me that i'd sing that song and that's who it was right. and yeah that's what he said so yeah that's cool yeah that's awesome awesome when you was talking about with your buddy how you was getting into music i was thinking to myself and it's weird how these stories just contain our memories continue to come up in my head when i hear somebody's testimony when i hear somebody's story and it I hadn't thought about this in probably 25 years. I, when he was talking about music and his love of music, I remembered that I was at, I'd left football practice and one of the other football players had gave me two Miller lights <laughs> and I put them in my backpack and I went home and that the first song I remember drinking any alcohol to. You remember when Terminator Two come out and Guns N' Roses had that <laughs> big song, "You Could Be Mine." As he was telling me that, I for some reason it just you're thinking about that Miller Lot and that song and that song, wow. Guns N' Roses, "You Could Be Mine." I can't remember what year that was. Early '90s, I guess it was. Would have been, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's, wow, it's amazing how those memories just it is pop up like that. Yeah, yeah. I remember stuff all the time. I don't think you got a good memory. <laughs> well, let's be clear, y'all. It's much better now right, than so it was a year that. ago. So, Well, Steve, I know that's going to impact some people. I know it's going to help some people. I pray that it does, Me Joe. too. And uh, you are a blessing. I thank you for doing this from the bottom of my heart. Without a doubt. Yeah, and you didn't say nothing about me tearing up because I'm not normally the one that does. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. I heard you over there. I know. I can feel you staring at me like I, I cannot believe. I was giving you the side eye. You know what I mean? I'm so grateful for you, Steve. Well, I'm Thank grateful you. for both of you. Thank you. I, like, really, I and one thing I've learned in this program is you don't say no. If I have an opportunity to help somebody, this is what I'm going to do. And right. that's why I was given this chance again at life. And life so much better than I could have ever imagined. And that's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Awesome. And if I can just give, if I can just help one person, if that's his purpose for me, that's all I want. That, that's right. what I say all the time. That is what if you say it's all just the time. one person. And uh, it's awesome. Glory cool. be to God. I Amen. Didn't, I didn't spit any snuff. Yeah, it drives me crazy. It, she complains about it all the time. People, that's all they're Everybody's so grateful right now. You just don't know. Wait till you see the comments. You got anything else, Jesse? No, that's all I got for today, Steve. Again, thank you. Thank you both so much. I ain't got nothing else. We're going to holler at y'all. All right.